0: We are moving into a series of conversations about light on Sunday mornings because light is such a big deal in all of the scriptures. In fact, in the very opening paragraphs, you have conversation about light. Uh, In the very closing paragraphs, you have conversation about light, the bright and shining light of God and, and everywhere in between. So we're going to look at a couple more passages today. These are very classic passages oftentimes they are considered uh, in the uh, the run-up to Christmas, in the Advent season. So I think it's really good that we're continuing to look at these things, because we'll think of them not so much in just the aspects of the birth of Jesus and, and um, you know, Santa and presents and all that other stuff going on, but we'll look at them more in their original context. So let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 7, actually, I want to look at today. Uh, and then we'll look at the first few verses of the gospel according to John. These, these, these uh, two passages should be very familiar to you if you've been involved in Bible study for a while or church for a while. If you haven't been involved for a while, maybe they feel brand new to you, and that's okay too, uh, because brand new is a good thing. Isaiah 9, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, He, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Familiar to many of you? Of course, of course. Let's look at it, as I say, not just in the context of thinking of the birth of Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but let's try to put ourselves back to the time when Isaiah first envisioned this, when the people of Israel first heard this, 750 years or so before Jesus was born. What did they think Isaiah was talking about? Maybe even what did Isaiah think ...he was talking about that later people understood meant something bigger than that. Well, let's begin to take it apart. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. I have to ask this question. Has anybody ever met someone named Zebulun or Naphtali? Anybody here? You don't meet folks named that much anymore. I don't, I don't know of a time in history when the name Naphtali was particularly used, except during this period. But Zebulun, if you go back into uh, American history 100 years, 150, 200 years ago, there are some Zebuluns, right? Uh, let's ask our resident genealogist. Any Zebuluns that you know of? One of the Israeli officials is named Naphtali. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, it is so easy, because we can't pronounce the names to begin with, and because they're so foreign to us, it's very easy to just sort of gloss over this and say, okay, well, Zebulun, Naphtali, the land, whatever. But but it's good for us to do some research to make this more human to us, if you will, to locate this specifically in time. So, Zebulun, you will remember, was the tenth son of Jacob. He was the sixth child born to Leah. And his tribe occupied what is known as the Western Jezreel Valley. Okay? Think, about, ju- think about, let's see, let me get my map straight here. We got Jerusalem here, Okay, and above Jerusalem a couple hundred miles, the Sea of Galilee. Well, the Jezreel Valley is over here to the left. Okay? That's where the Jezreel Valley is. It's a very fertile valley, a lot of population there, agrarian stuff going on. That's where the tribe of Zebulun settled. Okay. And then Naphtali. Naphtali was the fifth son of Jacob. He was the second son who was born to Bilhah, who was the maid who Rachel gave to Jacob as a concubine. Okay. This is is one place where you can talk to non-Christians who think that the Bible is boring and say, you know, let's, let's look at all these interesting things that came about in the Old Testament time, right? So we've got Zebulun and Naphtali, and Naphtali's family also settled in the Jezreel Valley, but more to the north, okay? So Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee, Jezreel Valley. As you go to the north, you have the land of Naphtali, all the way up to the border between Israel and Lebanon, or during that time would be uh, Israel and the Assyrian Empire. Okay, does that make sense? That's the area that that uh, Isaiah is talking about. Why is Isaiah talking about that region? Well, because Isaiah was born in the early part of the 8th century, in the early 700s. Uh, I've got a specific date for you. Maybe... Um, sometime around 765, okay? So 765 years more or less before Jesus. And during that time, we know that the nation of Israel, both the northern kingdom that was called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah, the nation of Israel was under constant pressure, economic pressure, military attack from the Assyrian Empire. Okay? The Assyrian Empire would have been to the north and then also to the east of Israel. The Assyrian Empire during this period, during the 700s and the 600s, was the dominant superpower in the region. The other superpower would have been Egypt. And so we've said before here many times, Israel was this poor little tiny nation stuck between two superpowers who were constantly fighting with each other and fighting over Israel. That's really what was going on. So Isaiah prophesies during a time of the the Assyrian uh, conquest, frankly, of the Northern Empire of Israel. And so he's talking about what's happening there in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And notice what he says is his vision about what's going to happen, right? There is going to be no gloom for those who were in anguish. Let's talk about the anguish for a minute. What kind of anguish is Isaiah describing? Well, let's think of living in a village somewhere in uh, the Jezreel Valley and your economic life is being disrupted by the Assyrian army that comes in and burns your crops every once in a while, steals your sheep uh, and your cattle. Uh, your, Your personal life is being disrupted because your sons have gone off to war and not all of them have come back and they never will come back. Or maybe it's been disrupted to the point where the army, the Assyrian army's come into your town um, and killed some of the men in the family and taken some of the women and taken some of the children and destroyed your houses. That's the anguish that we're talking about, serious anguish. Now, I doubt that many of us in this room have ever lived through that kind of anguish although we do have plenty of folks in the United States still living who survived World War II. Maybe they were living in Germany, or Poland, or Russia, uh, or, or Britain. Uh, maybe they were living in Japan, or, or the Middle East, somewhere. That's the kind of anguish. We're, we're talking about serious issues. We're not talking about heavy traffic on the five. You know, We're not talking about your hairdresser couldn't fit you in Saturday before the big deal, okay? Now, those are both gender, well, the first one is not a gender-specific reference, you know. My hairdresser never has trouble fitting me, and she's been cutting my hair now for over 35 years. It works out really well that way. Real, serious anguish. We're talking about the destruction of your family, the destruction of your livelihood, the destruction of your culture, the destruction of all of your history, the destruction of any promise of a future, the destruction of your people. And of course, that's eventually what happened with the northern kingdom at the hand of the Assyrians. In about 727, they were destroyed. And yet here, Isaiah has this vision where this anguish is going to be over. He doesn't just use the term anguish. He talks about gloom, right? There will be no gloom for those who were in anguish, those who were brought into contempt. The Israeli people had some sense that the suffering that they were going through was because God had kind of turned His back on them because, frankly, they had first turned their back on God. They were held in contempt by the very maker of the universe. Now, There's a bigger story going on there, but that's one way to describe it. We know what it feels like sometimes to feel as if God has deserted us, don't we? As if God isn't there anymore, or God isn't doing what we think God should be doing for us. Okay, so Isaiah sees this vision of some new thing that's going to happen, and then he describes it this way. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Let's think for just a minute about your darkness, okay? This is one of the places where Bible study is not fun. Because we need to talk about not their darkness, their suffering and anguish, but yours and mine and ours. Where do you see darkness going on today? Maybe in your life or someone else's life or maybe in a broader context. Where is darkness happening In Syria, absolutely, yes, absolutely. I'll be going to Syria, the Lord willing, in about two and a half weeks. Yeah. Washington, Washington, D.C. Who said Washington, D.C.? There we go, yes, yes. Where's that? Britain, Britain. yes, yes. How do you spell Brexit, actually? Does that make any difference anymore, right? B-R-E-X-I-T, right? Yeah, yeah. Where else is there darkness? France medical issues, issues, right? A Couple of you talked about some medical issues going on in your families right here, right now, right? That are scary, they're threatening, sure. Where else? Even people who are homeless in the rain. Yeah, people who are homeless in the rain, exactly. There are people living within two miles of this campus out under bridges and in little encampments and things, right? Where else do you see darkness? Yes. Yeah, France has extreme violence and social upheaval, and yeah, absolutely. Where else? Drugs and alcohol and mental health issues, Drugs and and mental health issues right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes, where? There, your older daughter's sister died. There we are. Yeah, sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a death in the church family yesterday afternoon. right? Yes, yes. We don't have to go very far to find a lot of darkness, do we? Right? So I think it's really important when we're reading these old texts and thinking about these big, you know, we're talking about Isaiah and all this stuff happening. We've got to bring it to today. Um, here's one of the advantages. Where's Gustavo? He's gone now. Here's one of the advantages of growing older, I think, is that you begin to learn that human life is human life is human life. And even though we might wear different clothes and we have different modes of transportation and communication and different understandings of the world maybe now than than back then, for the most part, human life is human life. And people 2,500 years ago, 2,700 years ago, felt exactly the same way about most things like you and I feel. Right? This is just human life. Forget the distance of time and all the other things, there is much more that we hold in common with ancient peoples and with all peoples than, we, than our differences between us. And so that begins to put us in touch with the, the pathos, the passion Uh, the real life issues, life and death issues, and not just life and death, but health and well-being, and all of those things are very much present in Isaiah's mind as he is seeing what God is telling him, as he is seeing what the future is going to be. Now, so you have this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad situation, beyond most of our imaginations, actually unless we take ourselves to a place where things like this are happening today. But Isaiah says, says that there's going to be light. There's going to be light that comes into the darkness. And then he describes what some of that light actually would look like. You have multiplied the nation. right? What happens when a nation is at war? A nation actually decreases, right? We think of the depopulation in Western Europe of men of a certain age during World War I and World War II or the depopulation of the world during World War II. 70 million people died in World War II. That's called depopulation. That's decrease. But here, you are multiplying the nation. You're having babies, (laughs) and they're growing to maturity, and people are growing to old age, right? You have increased its joy. You are joyful like we are at the harvest, right? At the harvest. Harvest is a great thing. There's lots of food we're celebrating, right? Or as people exalt when dividing plunder, Ooh, has anybody here ever divided plunder? These are the questions, we almost have, okay. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yes, lots of you have divided plunder. You go into the attorney's office and he starts to read the will. Ooh, now that's not what Isaiah's talking about, right? He's talking about we have conquered over here and we get to take other people's stuff, but that's kind of what dividing an estate is all about, isn't it? Dividing plunder. See, you have. That's a happy thing, right? Especially if the person who died you didn't care anything about. Oh. It's, a, it's an <laughs> There we go. Dividing plunder. All right? For the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Look at that. A yoke, a burden, a bar, the rod of an oppressor. You have broken. That's all done with now. Have any of you ever... I doubt that any of you have ever actually lived in a country that is being oppressed by another country. We do have some folks in this, in this church who have, right? I'm thinking of the Stieblas and others who grew up in, in the former uh, Soviet bloc, right? Uh, but most of us haven't really lived in a country like that. But we might have lived under oppression. Have any of you ever lived under oppression? Maybe in a very destructive relationship? maybe a violent relationship maybe and not just thinking of a of a you know a romantic relationship but sometimes we live under oppressive parents or with oppressive friends or siblings or whatever right maybe we have been the oppressor have you ever been the oppressor there's some other person sitting at a bible study somewhere else this morning studying this passage and you're the person that's come to mind no <laughs> we do have to ask that question though right? Because we all participate in these things, right? You have broken as on the day of Midian. There's another one of those names like Zebulun and Naphtali. Who is Midian? What's Midian all about, right? Well, the Midianites descended from a person named Midian. Midian was a son of Abraham that Abraham had with his concubine Keturah, okay? Keturah. Now, We remember in the Old Testament story that all the babies that people have because they try to make God's promise work out end up turning out not so well, okay? We think of Abraham and the son that God told him he would have named Isaac, and that's where the story flows. But here's a whole other son who really wasn't supposed to happen. The Midianites were historic arch enemies of Israel, Okay? And way back when in history, four or five hundred years earlier, there had been a decisive battle and the Israelites had pretty much wiped out the Midianites. Okay? Now, we think of the day of Midian and we don't know really what that's about, but when Isaiah's prophesying to people, they know what the day of Midian is all about and how bad it was. And God, in giving victory over the Midianites, Isaiah says God is going to give the same kind of victory over the current oppression that is facing us here in Israel. And how is that going to happen, right? One final vision of it, the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. I don't want to gloss over that either. I don't want us to leave that alone. Isn't that a beautiful vision? The boots of the tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood, All all the machinery of warfare won't be needed anymore this is a plowshares into pruning hooks and uh, and spears into let's say how does that go I just now forgot it you know the one I'm talking about They should beat their plowshares into into pruning hooks. all the implements of war will no longer be needed wouldn't that be amazing this town is very very familiar with implements of war are we not There's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of implements of war and the people who have to make them happen. And you know I'm not anti-military. But still, think of the resource that we spend. All of that's not going to be needed. What a beautiful vision. Why? Why is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Isaiah says, I have this beautiful vision of what God is going to do, but how? Well, a child, notice, has been born for us. Not will be, but has been. The tense of that is very important. We automatically read this, and we go to Jesus, right? A child, a son, and these great names, Counselor, God, Father, Prince of Peace, all that good stuff. Here's a fascinating question. Might Isaiah have had someone in mind in his own lifetime, the way he says it here, who's already around, who is going to bring these things about for Israel? That's the question we have to ask. It's always vital to ask when you're studying the Old Testament what the Old Testament meant when it was written, before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. Because there can be some good answers, and it's important to know what the answers were. For 700 years, at least, people had read these prophecies and heard these prophecies, and they were looking for someone. And maybe pointing out someone in their own history. Well, scholars argue about this a lot, of course, because we don't really know. Um, Isaiah never names this person, per se. But we do know that during Isaiah's lifetime, that the king of Israel, the southern kingdom especially, uh, Isaiah's in the northern kingdom, right? But the southern kingdom is related to the northern kingdom. The king was Ahaz. And Ahaz could care less about God, he could care less about the worship of Yahweh and the moral ethical lifestyle that had been taught to the people. Ahaz was a political scheming conniver and shucker and jiver and he was always making alliances with Egypt or with Assyria and trying to pit them against each other and it wasn't working out well. Eventually the kingdom would fall. But Ahaz had a son, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had a heart for God. And Hezekiah actually was able to maintain the safety and security of the northern kingdom for a while. Maybe Isaiah's talking about Hezekiah, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But it's an interesting idea to think of because the kind of success that Isaiah's speaking of here, the kind of light that's going to come to Israel, is mostly about what's going to go on in the historic nation of Israel in this sphere of existence, isn't it? not going to be any war anymore, and the nation's going to increase, and we're going to be prosperous again. All of that stuff is about here and now kind of kingdoms. I'm emphasizing that because Christians later on would say that's really not what Isaiah was talking about. He was talking about something bigger than that, and of course Jesus as Messiah was talking about something bigger than that. But you can see how 700 years earlier, people would think of that in very earthly, real-world, real-time kinds of terms. And then Isaiah gives this amazing description of who this king or leader or eventually Messiah might be. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Those were often names and titles that were given to any king and any leader. The Egyptians had used titles like that for years. These are not things that are specific to Jesus. Wouldn't we like to have these uh, titles uh, be given and actually be lived out by our current leaders? Wouldn't that be interesting? There we go. What's that? Dream on. Yes, yes, dream on. What a a great campaign slogans. Yes, elect me. I will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. That's what Isaiah sees is going to happen. This person's authority will grow. There'll be peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. There will be justice and righteousness forevermore. The zeal, the power, the passion of God, the Lord of hosts, is going to do all this. So we have here fundamentally, in the midst of a time when everything is going straight downhill, we have this vision that God is going to make something different happen. That God is going to redeem the nation. God is going to save the nation. If you've learned anything about the Old Testament prophets, you've learned that one of the things they did was talk about how bad things were and why that was, but they always ended up with a positive note, a positive message, and Isaiah may be more supremely than any of the others. As bad as it is, and as bad as it can get, and it might even get worse before it gets better, God has something else in mind. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? From the Old Testament, this is even before Jesus appears on the scene. This is part of the gospel in the Old Testament, because the God of the New Testament is also the God of the Old Testament. God doesn't change. God's been about His business from the very beginning, and this is the way that Isaiah and the people began to understand what that was. I'll be focusing Sunday morning more, and I would encourage you to focus some on your thinking on this business of moving from dark to light. That's really what Isaiah is talking about, and Isaiah really, he he focuses on the darkness for a while, We don't like to do that, right? Now, I know there are some people who love sharing bad news and love talking about their problems all the time, right? All the time, not just some of the time. It's important that we be honest about the darkness, right? So that we then understand what the light is all about. Now, let's compare this passage, and I've paired it with one that's also famous, one that's also used a lot at Christmas time but it's about so much more than just Christmas, Uh, the opening verses of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. You've heard this before, right? You think you know what it's talking about, right? You do. You do. A lot. What more can we learn? How, how else can we see this? Well, remember that the gospel according to John was written late in the first century in which Jesus lived or maybe even finally written down in the very early years of the second century. Do you remember why we say that? Scholars believe that to be the case. We don't don't actually have a copyright date on any of the documents. We don't know for sure and we never will unless we discover some new documents. But scholars believe that because the gospel according to John uses a lot of Greek Philosophy and Greek thought forms, as well as Roman ideas, to talk about what is fundamentally a Hebrew question the question of Jesus the Messiah. We believe that the church had had some decades in order uh, to reflect on who Jesus was and begin to think about Jesus and the gift of the Messiah, not just in terms of the Old Testament not just in terms of, of the Hebrew people or of the Hebrew language even, but to begin to incorporate other languages, other thought forms into the whole conversation, okay? This is an important dynamic to remember because that's something that people of faith do all the time. And we still do it today, right? We think about God in terms of the... Cre- let's say God the creator, right? We're talking about God the creator here. And when we think of creation, what do we think about? We think about maybe the Big Bang Theory. We think about uh, tiny little particles coming together. And we think about uh, the speed of light. And we think about the size of... The- we think about the idea of creation from the perspective of our modern scientific understanding, Right? And so we always have to be thinking about God in the light of what we know about God. Maybe another way to think about this is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought to the new world, was brought into the region where you and I are right now, there were already some people living here who had their own ideas about God and creation and everything else, right? It's kind of a, you know, a a common truism, but so many of the Native American Indian population talked about God as the Great Spirit, right? Well, the the Christian missionaries got here and said, here, we're going to tell you more about the Great Spirit. That's what's happening in the gospel according to John. He's making the connections between his understanding as a Jewish person who believes in Jesus as the Messiah, he's making connections now with people from a Greek-speaking background or a Greek philosophical and theological background that largely dominated in the Roman world as well. And he's talking about Jesus as the logos of God. That idea of Logos does not occur in the Old Testament in the same way, although there is a connection. In the Genesis story about creation, God speaks a word, okay? And word and Logos are very closely related to each other. Logos means the logic of God, the mind of God, the intelligence of God, the power of God as well. It's not just what God thinks, but interestingly, when God thinks something, God actually can do something. He thinks something into existence. He doesn't even have to lift a finger, He's so powerful. He thinks it into existence, or He speaks it into existence, right? Speaking a word is a simple thing. It's easy to say something, it's a different thing to do something. God is such that when God says, God also does. That's the power of the logos that is creating. That's how John wants to describe not just God, but also Jesus. And John does it in very, very overt terms. The words he uses at the beginning of his gospel are the same words that are used at the beginning of the, of the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis begins in the Hebrew with these words, bereshith, Bereshah, in the beginning. Okay? The Greek translation of Bereshith Bedeshah is "En arche. That's the Greek. That's how John starts his gospel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, and if you know anything about Greek philosophy, when you read, when you start to read John's gospel, you're instantly recognizing where John is coming from and to whom he is speaking. Okay? That's the dominant thought form that actually exists in this opening section of the gospel according to John. That's who John is going to tell us about. The mind, the intelligence, the will, the power, the competence, the capability that created everything, that sustains everything, by which everything exists or does not, if God decides it won't exist. That's who John's going to talk about. And then John says this is the same thing as the light that shines in darkness. There's that idea of light again. That's why light fascinates us so much, especially when we study theology, because the idea pops up over and over and over again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, in most of our English translations now, says the darkness did not overcome it. There's a different way to translate that, though. The darkness did not comprehend it. I love that thought. Darkness does not understand light. Evil and hatred does not even understand goodness and love. But notice which overcomes which. The light overcomes the darkness. It's almost as if the light understands the darkness. The light comprehends the darkness. The light envelops the darkness and destroys the darkness. Isn't that an interesting thought? Now, let's go back to the conversation about darkness and light and the darkness in your life, right? Think of of those times in your life where you have been experiencing the deepest darkness that you've ever felt, okay? Maybe someone has just died, maybe you've been told bad medical news, maybe a relationship has died, Uh, maybe the business has gone belly up, maybe you've been uh, surrounded, your hometown has been surrounded uh, by an occupying force and you've been told to leave and get out. I get to visit with a lot of people like that in the Middle East, right? Let's talk about all that darkness. The darkness is real. The darkness is serious. You better believe it's serious. But here's the affirmation both of Isaiah and of John, the affirmation of Scripture, that light overcomes that darkness. How does that happen? That's one of my questions for you. How? How does it feel? How does it happen? How does the transaction work? Because I'm mostly interested in light overcoming your darkness, (laughs) and you're seeing the light and knowing the light. If you don't see it today, if you don't recognize it today or tomorrow, then this is a huge waste of our time. It's just an interesting historical exercise. It's one great thing to know, oh, that happened or someone thought that or felt that or said this and isn't it interesting how it all holds together historically, linguistically, culturally, literarily in the scripture, that's all interesting stuff, but unless it means something to you today, then it's a waste of our time. So, back to my question that you are going to answer now. How does the light overcome the darkness in your life, or how might it do that in our broader life? Not just our own personal darkness, but our corporate darkness. Yes? With support from others. Okay, great example. When you're in the midst of darkness, and someone comes to you and says, I'm here to help you through this, that's a ray of sunshine, isn't it? Excellent, excellent. Yes. Through our faith, faith. holding on to the promise. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, when you're going through the darkest period... You still know about this stuff, and you still feel that this stuff is true, that it's right, that it's good, and that keeps you going, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. A corollary to our faith is our experience, that when we actually do go through the dark period, okay, and you used another great synonym for dark, okay, manure. The other synonym for it is also a four-letter word. See, dark is a four-letter word, and yeah, there we go, right? When you're going through that, and you have come through that once before, or maybe a thousand times before, when you're going through it again, you say, oh, I've been there and done this, right? And that encourages your faith. That's one of the reasons that old people should talk to young people. And that's one of the reasons that young people should listen to old people, <laughs> right? That's why we have the family of the church, the old person who says, I see what you're going through. I did it too. If I did it, you can do it. And that's where someone comes alongside you, right? To bring the light. Yes, someone else. We got another hand up over here. The church. The church. Yes, the church. The fellowship of the church, right? Now, think back to Isaiah's time, okay? Let's take it all the way back there. The word church didn't really exist yet in Isaiah's time uh, in the same way that it exists for us, but the church for Isaiah would have been the community of faith, right? The people who gathered in the synagogue or gathered in the temple to read the scriptures and to share in prayers with each other and to worship and to study the faith Those were the people who got each other through. That's why it was so important to the Old Testament prophets when the people began to move away from the practice of their faith. is because they forgot the truth. They didn't know the truth. The old people weren't telling the young people, and the young people weren't listening anymore. They didn't understand that they could get through these things. They didn't know that there was a different way to do things, or they didn't care about it. So if the church ceases to exist, the truth ceases to exist, and the darkness overcomes the light. Think about that. That's one of the ways that Christians have historically looked at the church itself. Now, not necessarily buildings or institutions or denominations or any of that stuff, but the existence of the fellowship of the people of God is, we would say, the very existence of the light of God present in the world. And if we don't make the church happen, the darkness wins. That's what's at stake here, okay? What's at stake is if we don't do what we're doing with each other, the darkness wins. Now, it can get pretty dark sometimes in the life of the church. The church itself can get dark. <laughs> and, and the forces of evil and oppression, right? The Midianites can rise up again <laughs> against us. But what are we assured of? That the light always overcomes the dark, right? Now, I, there's probably about, what, 75 people in the room right now? 80? I don't know what our count is this morning. Somewhere around there, right? Let's say 73 of us don't show up, and there's only two of us. Is that enough light? Is there still light? There is still light. Sometimes that's what happens, is that there's only a couple left standing, but the light still shines. Interesting. How else? How else does light overcome darkness? Yes. When I go through really (laughs) tough times, then... I really focus on the psalms and I have certain psalms memorized and also underlined but then I read them and then I go to my journal and I look at that those times and then I personalize the new time and it starts living inside of me and then I start searching for the psalms of joy to try to regain the joy of the Lord and really live it, Mm -hmm. you know, claim it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it, it helps. Yeah, that's a great description of a great actual thing that a person can do. Right? You can remember you can read the psalms, you can remember the psalms, you can study the psalms, you can you can journal about the psalms, you can kind of have a conversation with the psalms, and then you sort of have your own little internal fellowship going on there reminding yourself of what you already know right? That's a beautiful thing because there isn't always someone else there. You need to remember your voice or remember the voice of someone else, right? How many of you think of the voices or hear the things that other people have said to you maybe 50 years ago that still keep you going, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, another one. How the light overcomes the dark. Uh, Piggybacking a little bit on what was just said, music our hymns, our mm-hmm. old hymns, praise music, literally can turn the light on. I have a beloved brother-in-law who's struggling with Alzheimer's. When we put praise music on for him, he mm-hmm. remembers every word, literally the light goes on. Isn't that interesting? But God is still in there, He's still his faith is still strong. Yeah, yeah. He can't remember what he had for breakfast, but boy, he knows those words. He remembers the music that yes. speaks again of the truth. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and also interesting. Helen's mother's is, has been in an Alzheimer's facility now for a couple of years, and most of the time she can't call anything to memory. Um, but there's this little old Baptist preacher who comes and does church every, church every once in a while with him. It means about, you know, seven or eight uh, uh, residents of that community sit with him, and he talks for a while or other, but then he starts singing the old Baptist hymns, and they just start singing them with him. They can't remember their name or your name or what they had to eat two minutes ago, but go back to a hymn that they learned 70 years ago, boom, it's right there. These are all, some people might say, well, that's just a little mental trick that you're playing with yourself. Horse hockey. That, that, that is what we've been encouraged to do from the very beginning to put ourselves back in touch with that deep truth that actually does have power. We know that power, right? Someone else. Yes, Lynn. Forgiveness. Oh, Yes, to, to actually extend forgiveness to another, to receive forgiveness for another, is one of the ways that light overcomes darkness. Absolutely. People ask me all the time about how I think we can solve all the problems of the Middle East, as if they think I have an answer, right? <laughs> well, actually, I do have some answers, right? And one of the first things, and pro- probably the first thing that I actually mention is forgiveness, okay? And here's where we can take light over dark, not just into personal life, but into corporate life, right? I would dare say that everyone in this room comes from a people group or some kind of of tribe, if you will, that at one time or another was a mortal enemy, and people actually died with someone else from another tribe here somewhere, Right? At one point in time, all of our people were killing each other. Okay? I'll pretty much guarantee that, wherever you've come from, Okay, if you look at history. Okay, But interestingly enough, at least as far as I know, right now we are not trying to kill each other. Why? Because we have forgiven. Okay, You don't have to go very far back, actually. Let me just pick on recent history that we all remember, right? There was a time when a German person would not have survived very well in this room, or a Japanese person would not have survived very well in this room, or us in their rooms, right? And yet somehow, corporately, governmentally, culturally, we've managed to forgive. One of the reasons that the Middle East is so troubled is because people remember how somebody messed with them 8,000 years ago. And and the forgiveness has never happened. The resolution and the peace has never happened. Now, don't get me wrong, that happens and has happened a lot in the Middle East, right? There are lots of people groups that get along well with each other, and for the most part, most people do, but there are those who bring up the old rivalries, there are those who still depend on them, those who still foster them and feed them and keep them going, all because there's not a way to experience corporate forgiveness. And then, of course, that applies personally as well. How else does light overcome darkness? Yes. I was just going to add by nature. And the mercies are new every morning, the sunrise. There we go. By nature, yes. Darkness actually ends every day. Yes, the darkness ends. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting... The, this is where we begin to see some of the truth of God just in nature itself, right? That heavens are telling the glory of God, right? The light comes up every day. The light is always there, okay? When we start talking about the laws of physics, okay, and what happens, darkness is actually not a real thing, okay? Darkness is just the absence of the real thing, which is light, Cold is another thing we talk about. Cold actually doesn't exist. Cold is just the absence of heat, okay? Now, take that into a broader spiritual sphere, okay? Hate does not actually exist. It's the absence of love, right? Fear does not actually exist, Fear is the absence of courage or strength or whatever, right? So, back to the light and dark. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard, and I constantly look for a better one, but one of the best, it still says so much to me. You can take the biggest room in the world. Let's say, the, think of the biggest building you've ever been in. Maybe a basketball arena, maybe the Superdome or something like that, right? Okay, and you're inside and it's pitch black outside, and you turn off all the lights. It's completely dark, right? All you have to do is light one little match, and that one little match shines. All the darkness that's there does not overcome the one little match, right? So nature itself, by the fact that the sun comes up tomorrow. Now, we're in trouble once our sun goes supernova and explodes and there's no more dark, okay, or no more light from that sun, but there's billions and billions and billions of suns that will never go out, right? Just the fact that the sun comes up tomorrow, which takes me to my saying, you know, lots of times people ask me, how are you doing? I say, well, I got up today, meaning there's another day. Okay, there we go, right? The, the, the joy of the Lord is new every morning, right, the mercies of God are new every day, just that very fact, now you might choose not to get up today, but the sun gets up every day, right, we get up every day, absolutely, all of that is there to strengthen us, encourage us, there we go, okay, here, wisdom, wisdom from one of, one of our wise ones, okay, who's been on, let's just say, more than nine decades now, right? I think that's so cool. Sometimes you get up in the morning, you don't want to get up and go and do. But if you go and do, you're glad that you did, and you conquer that darkness that's trying to keep you down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for someone who is 30 years older than I am. (laughs) Seriously so. I think that's totally cool. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for bringing light to our darkness. For calling us to remember that eternal and cosmic truth that you are the source of light and no amount of darkness is going to cancel you out. And you have come into our world in Jesus to remind us of that truth and to demonstrate that truth and then to make it real in our own lives. We pray, God, for those who are undergoing particularly acute darkness today. And we pray as well for those who might be the ones to bring some light. Help us to be the light in others' darkness and then bring light light to our world that seems so enveloped with darkness right now. Always help us to remember that we can keep going, that the light will keep shining, because it's you. In Jesus we pray, amen. God bless you all.